glad you were here this morning. Sometimes it's hard to sing those songs when you know what you're preaching on. And uh, I pray that you will be blessed by what we read of in the book of Joel this morning. So if you would, open to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27. Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. And when you found your place there, please open, uh, please stand to your feet, and we will read the word of God together. Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Indeed, this is a most blessed passage of Scripture. Phenomenal. Let us read this together. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, Look, I am about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land, his front ranks into the Dead Sea and his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness pastures have turned green. The trees bear their fruit, and the fig tree and the grapevine yield their riches. Children of Zion, Rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify your name now. We magnify you by the preaching of your word. Lord, you make yourself known by your word. And Lord, you are actually speaking to us by your word. So we are having a direct encounter with you now, God, whether we feel it or not. God, you are present here. So I pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ by the preaching of your word and your truth. Those who do not know Christ, I pray that they would be given the grace of repentance and faith this morning. You'd give them those gifts and a new heart to believe that they might come to know the refreshing that Christ brings now and is bringing in the future. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Please be seated at this point. The sermon is titled, Humanity's Restoration. Humanity's Restoration. The Teeming of Judah. This is part one. The Teeming of Judah, part one. It was early 2020, before COVID. Macy and I were headed to get some Popeye's chicken, because who doesn't love Popeye's chicken? Before we went to grab our grub, though, I pulled up next to our mailbox and collected the mail and handed it to Macy. Macy was rummaging through it, and in there was a letter from the University of Redlands. By this time, we were already at Popeye's chicken, because it's just a couple blocks away from our house, less than a mile. In the months prior to this, my wife and I were encouraging Macy because Macy was discouraged and she was 100% positive that no college would accept her even though she had a 4.0, right? Doesn't sound like a very smart kid, right? No college is gonna take me, my grades are good, right? We had actually encouraged her not to take AP classes, advanced placement classes in English and in history and other subjects. And we actually encouraged her to take all the music classes that she could um, while she was at her performing uh, arts school. And my wife and I, we had recognized and knew since Macy was born that we were just stewards of, of God over her life. That she ultimately belonged to God and we're just here for a little while to take care of her and to manage her life. And so we wanted her to become all that she could be for God 
in the way that God shaped her and gifted her. And so with high school ending and having encouraged her to take certain classes, Macy and I sat in that Popeye's chicken drive through in line with anxious anticipation looking at that letter from the University of Redlands. And Macy opened the letter and she began to read it out loud. Congratulations, Macy Ritchie. You've been accepted to the University of Redlands. And at that moment, we both started to cry. And we were teeming with joy. And then she continued to read the letter, which further announced that she would receive a scholarship that would basically cover half, half the cost of her education. And then the tears got bigger. And we were like screaming and celebrating. And that went just through the roof. And we couldn't wait to get home to tell Jenny. So we're kind of hoarding this information to ourselves because we're in Popeye's check-in and uh, have to drive a half mile back home. And in that moment, we thanked God for what he had done for our family. There's no other way to put it, but we were teeming with joy. A huge blessing from God had been poured out on, upon us. And the only proper response, the only proper response was spontaneous, exuberant joy in God. That's the only right response in, in moments like those. Now the word teeming, teeming means to swarm or to abound with something. Rivers can teem with fish. A couple weeks ago, my backyard was teeming with stray cats. Man, talk about scary, right? Something out of a, a Stephen King movie, right? But seven to be precise, just hiding and lurking in the dark shadows of my backyard. As we look at Joel this morning, we're reminded that Judah is not teeming. They are not flourishing. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, I should say, a flourishing spiritual life had connections to a flourishing land and its prosperity, its produce. What I mean is this. God had made a covenant or a contract with Israel. In the vitality of the land, its produce, what it yielded in its crops and its harvest and its cattle and all that stuff and its livestock, it was an indicator from God that Israel was in right covenant relationship with God, that they were faithful to God. If the land was barren, then it signified to them that they had turned their backs on God. Now, those of us that are Christians, we are in the new covenant, not in the old covenant. So this flourishing is a little bit different. It's not tied to the produce in a land, all right? But at the present moment, we are in Joel, in the Old Covenant. And Judah is not flourishing. They are not celebrating. In fact, the day of the Lord was upon them. In other words, judgment was upon them. A locust invasion had destroyed all of their food sources. A drought had ravaged the land and dried up everything. So there are no crops the animals are moaning and groaning and crying out to God in hunger. And all of this judgment was from God. Yet the people are torpid. They're spiritually asleep. They are unaware that all this devastation has come from God and why it has hit them. They had turned their backs on God. And now they're paying the price for their rebellion according to the contract that God made with them. Stay faithful, I'll bless your land. Turn from me, I'll curse the land. So God has removed blessing, removed food, removed wine and oil. Their land and their lives are not flourishing. Flourishing. And not only are they starving, but they can no longer offer thank offerings to God or drink offerings to God. Grain offerings. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the blessings that he gave them. So their physical and spiritual lives are in turmoil because of sin and because of God's curses upon them. The land is not teeming with food, nor are they teeming with joyful worship. They have no food to offer back to God because God took away that blessing. And so God has called them to weep if, as we've been going through Joel. You see that God has been calling them to weep and to repent. And the hope of Judah, the hope of Judah is that if they repent, that is if they turn from their rebellion to God and turn back to him, then perhaps God will leave a blessing behind him for them so that they can flourish once again. Now this morning, we have a rather large passage of Scripture. Our plan is to look at it this week and next week, God willing. It's one of the most amazing passages in Scripture that I have ever been blessed to read and to study. The way that God inspired this piece of poetry, the way it is written, is multi-layered, and to me it is fascinating. From every angle, it is pointing to the joy that we are to have when we are teeming with the blessings of God. 
that God has brought to us. In other words, because our lives are teeming with God's blessings, we should be teeming with abundant and joyful worship. And that's what's at the heart of what we're going to look at this week and next week. Now, I know a lot of people accuse the minor prophets of being dull or full of wrath and judgment, but this centerpiece in Joel is going to prove you wrong. So today, those of you that have never been wrong in your life, today you're going to go down, all right? If you think that that's all the prophets, minor prophets are about. In the end, you will see how it points to Christ and what he has done for you and what your response should be to him. So even though this is ultimate, uh, immediately, I should say, about Judah and the Lord, ultimately it will point us to Jesus and how we should respond to him. Now this morning, I'm going to lay out this big section of scripture in what is called a chiasm. It's a form of Hebrew poetry. I've used that word before. And don't worry, I won't say words and leave you in the dark as to what they mean. On the screen, you'll see what I mean by a chiasm or a chiastic structure. That should be up there, yes? There it is. All right. Good job, video guy in the back, all right? <laughs> and if you haven't ever thanked the sound guy or the video guy, please do so because they serve you and they, they get a lot of complaints when they mess up, right? Or we, we mess up on their behalf by not giving them proper information. It's usually never them. It's usually us, okay? But you see the Kaisic structure on the screen. It's a structure where the beginning of the section is parallel to the last part of the section, and then you ascend to the next part of the section, and that is parallel to the second to the last part of the section, and the third part of the, of the beginning is parallel to the third from the last part. And it continues on until the parallel ideas arrive at a central peak or a pedestal or a platform. And of course, they ascend, and then they descend in reverse order. And each step mirrors the other step on the other side, but the focus that God and the prophets or whoever is writing that scripture, the focus that they're trying to get us to pay attention to is right at the heart and in the middle. It's a poetic use of uh, structure, and it's to drive you to focus on whatever that central point is. It could be a person. It could be a point of application. It could be a command. It could be something to consider. Whatever it is, that's what they're getting you to look at. With that in mind, Joel also, in this passage, uses a lot of repetition and other parallels within the chiastic structure. He uses phrases with double meanings, like it could mean this or that, this or that, and it means both. He continues to use imagery to get his point across. He uses verbs to indicate that things that are going to happen, actually he uses verbs in a way that, that it seems like these things have happened, even though they haven't. Okay? He's using a particular kind of verb to communicate certainty of the future. And it's really a fascinating passage, and it's meant to encourage you it's meant to incite passionate worship and the love of God in your heart. It's one of the most well thought out and arraigned passages of scripture that I've ever had the privilege of preaching through. I think it's pure genius the way that this is crafted. So the first step this morning that we're going to look at in this chiastic structure, it teaches us, number one, that the, the Lord's jealousy will result in Judah's teeming. Remember, the sermon is titled, The Teeming of Judah. Humanity's restoration. There's a teeming coming for humanity. There's a teeming in Judah, and we see that the Lord's jealousy will result in Judah's teeming. Now let's go back to verse 18, the first verse we read this morning. We see that the scripture says this. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. Now we, we got to remember that even though we're starting in verse 18 today, it falls on the heels of what God's word says in the previous passage of scripture. And that's what I taught on last time, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. In that passage, let me help you real quick. The Lord and Joel called Judah to repent and to turn to God with weeping and fasting and mourning for their sin. We just don't know what their sin was. Then Joel reminds the people that God is gracious. Turn to God. Remember that he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. And he frequently relents and turns back from sending more disaster. God is gracious and compassionate. Joel's hope is that if the people turn back to God sincerely, then God may leave a blessing instead of further destruction. Because God has threatened further destruction in the previous chapter. Remember that in that passage we saw that the ram's horn or the shofar it was to be blasted, blasted, and everyone was to assemble together 
as one people before the temple of God, before the Lord, and they were to fast. This was a holy and a sacred meeting, and it required everyone's attendance, from babies to the elderly to newlyweds and even to the uh, Jewish priests, the Israelite priests. The priests were to corporately pray. They were to assemble and pray themselves. And this is what verse 17 says that they were to pray. So we're backtracking just one verse. Here's what they were to pray. Have pity on your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples or the nations, where is their God? So they're praying for God to show his merciful and compassionate and forgiving attributes. They're praying for restoration. That's really what they're praying for. They realize that as God's people, they have been publicly shamed and disgraced. The nations around them are mocking them because their land is devastated. And to the nations, it looks like God is impotent, not omnipotent. It looks like he's impotent, weak, powerless. It looks like God is absent instead of omnipresent. Where is their God? God and his people are being a, becoming a laughing stock. Can you see that? That's what's going on because of their sin. And so remember that this is what is happening. Then verse 18 is stated, and in verse 18 we see that God becomes jealous for his land, and then he spares his people. What does it mean that God is jealous for his land? Generally, when we think of the word jealousy, we think of someone being possessive, or angry that someone is encroaching upon something that belongs to them, okay? We can become protective of our own rights or our own possessions. Sometimes we use jealousy to describe the feeling of envy, like when someone has something that we don't have or that we didn't get, like a promotion at work. You become jealous of that person or a fancy new car. Sometimes we use it to express suspicion, right? When it comes to relationships that, are people, that people are in, We've all heard of the jealous boyfriend who is uh, suspicious of any relationship that his girlfriend has with any other human being. It could be a dog, even. I'm just I'm jealous, right? We, we all know that guy, right? We call that person jealous. I remember being jealous when Macy was born, and I got less attention from my wife. <laughs> poor, poor me, right? What does it mean for God to be jealous for his land? What does that mean? It means... It means something a little bit different than what we might think the word jealousy means, okay? It means that God is angry at the way his land and his people are being treated, okay? This is his land. These are his people. It's his zeal at work here. To see his land devastated, to see his people mocked and ridiculed has aroused his anger. It's the sort of anger or jealousy that a husband would feel for his wife if she were mistreated by another person. Can you imagine, husbands, if someone mistreated the wife that you love? What would that arouse? That's jealousy right there in a biblical sense. A husband who truly loves his wife will love her as his own flesh. And so if you mistreat his spouse, it's the same as mistreating him. And so the husband arises to defend his wife and his own honor. And that is the sort of jealousy that God has for his land and his people and for his own glory. But wait, you might be thinking, wasn't God the one who inflicted the curse upon the land and the people? You bet he was. He says it was him. His people sinned, and they got what they deserved. God did it. And yet this still made God protective and defensive and moved him to take action and to go on the offensive. Yes, God is just. He must punish the evil of Judah. Nevertheless, God still cared for his land and his people. And so his jealousy is aroused when he sees his land in bad condition due to the locusts and the drought that he brought to them. When God sees his people attacked, he becomes protective. This arouses his zeal and his jealousy. And to the nations, again, it looks like God can't, looks like God can't fend off locusts. It looks like God can't send rain. Where is their God? And so when God is mocked for this, as Judah is being mocked, he is moved to rise up in anger and to show his glory. 
It looks like God has forsaken his people, but his jealousy will show otherwise. Neither the land nor the people will be shamed much longer. And that is God's jealousy in action for them. Judah is his portion, his possession. Judah is his land. And to attack Judah and the land is to attack God. Now you have to remember that this is all part of a much bigger story. Right? This is connected to God's promise to a guy named Abraham. God promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so God's curse would come upon Abraham's enemies. And this is, these are Abraham's descendants, and so by extension, the promise is for them too. And so this jealousy is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also connected to something we call the Mosaic covenant, right? Uh, where God gave the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai. He gave it to Moses, who passed it on to the people. But both of these things, are, and all this stuff is all connected to Jesus, as we'll see in just a bit, okay? But we have to remember that in the Mosaic Covenant, all right, blessings can only be restored when Israel repents. That's God's promise. When you return to me, I will restore all the, I will take away the curses that I brought upon you and I will return blessing to you. That's in the Mosaic covenant for, for Israel, right? Judah is what's left of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. That's all that's left. The, the northern 10 tribes have been destroyed, right? But the fact that God's jealousy is aroused, think about it. The fact that God's jealousy is aroused indicates that he's about to do something on their behalf. And this can only mean that Judah has repented. He's been calling them to repent, has he not? Ever since the beginning of Joel, showing them their devastation, calling them to repent, calling them to assemble, to weep and to fast. And Joel leaves it to us to fill in this gap, even though it's not stated that they repented, we can rightly assume it. But this is because God has called them to repent. So just maybe, just maybe as we learned in our last sermon, maybe God will leave a blessing. Maybe God will not bring further curses. If that happens, then they'll flourish, the nations will cease their mockery, and the shame of Judah will vanish. This will serve to make a grand statement that God exists and is with Israel. He loves Israel. He loves Judah. He loves his land. He is present. The mocking nations are sorely mistaken. Now, this is why when you understand this concept you can see that there's a parallel between verse 18 and verse 27, the end of the section. Look at verse 27 with me, and you're going to see the parallels, okay? It might not look like it at first, but we'll, it'll build, and you'll see more and more of it as we go. Verse 27 says this, You will know that I am present in Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. In verse 18, let me help point out some of the parallels. We see that God is jealous for the land and that he spared his people. He spared his people. What is he going to spare his people? Well, further judgment, further shame, further disgrace, right? He's sparing them from all the things that have just been mentioned in the prior verse, in verse 17. So this answers the mockery of the nations of where is their God? Where's their God? He's certainly present. I will spare them that shame of mockery of where people are questioning that I am not there and able to bless their land. He certainly is present. His jealousy will prove it. So God now declares in verse 27 that he is their God, right? And he says the same thing in verse 18, my people. I am their God, my people. So there's this parallel. Even if it's not identical wording, there's a parallel. We see the matching language of the verse. And this is covenant language, this is contractual language that they will be his people and I will be their God. And so the statements are linked. There is no other God in Israel or in the entire world. There is no other. That is an exclusive statement pertaining only to our Lord. Thus, we see the Lord's jealousy of Judah in verse 18 and we see the same in verse 27. In their repentance, his jealousy is coming to their aid to remove the shame so that they may be exalted among the nations and ultimately so that he'll be exalted among the nations. Instead of being under the judgment of God, right, or instead of being the God of judgment, he'll be seen as the God of jealousy 
who spares and blesses Judah. Never again, verse 27 says, shall they be put to shame. What is he sparing them of in verse 17? Uh, in verse 18, he's sparing them, right, of shame and further destruction. And so we see a parallel idea and notion in verse 27. And the way that God is going to remove that shame is through the restoration of the land so that Judah is fully satisfied in her needs. So what does this have to do with any of us? I mentioned it before, but the world often mocks Christians. We are God's people. We are his portion. We're going to sing a song that has that phrase in just a little bit at the end of service. We are his portion. We are his people. Okay, That is covenant language. What does it have to do with us? Well, 1 Peter 2 says that we are the possession of God. Christians, the church, just like Judah was God's possession. Covenant language. As his people, when we sin, we are disciplined by God. Blessings and flourishing are often removed because of our sin. When we repent, discipline uh, when we repent, the discipline is removed so that the flourishing can resume. What does this do? This gives credence, believability, to the reality that God is among us. Okay? Can the world see God? Can we see God? No. Our lives are supposed to demonstrate the reality of God's presence in this world. But often we negate that with our sin, and then the world mocks us and ridicules not just us, but God. They will say, like the nations around Israel, where is your God? Because of our sin. Church, we must continually repent, continually repent, so that our lives can be the visible testament to God's glory here on earth. The church is supposed to be the visible display of God's glory. We are supposed to demonstrate what God is like and demonstrate that God is here. We are supposed to reflect his image better and better, more and more. And I promise you that leads to a flourishing life, to a flourishing life which removes reason for the world to mock us. Eventually, one day, one day God will restore this planet, his land, his planet. For his namesake. This planet will flourish in ways that we have never seen before. And we've already begun to sing about that this morning. Our resurrection bodies will flourish in ways that we cannot imagine. And God will do this for us. For who? For those who have repented of their sin. Just like Judah repented. For those who repented of their sin. The Lord is bringing amazing restoration and amazing blessing. God doesn't do this for all people though. He does it for his own glory, though, and he does it out of jealousy for us. He will bring vengeance on those who mock us and attack us. He will not allow the world to mock us forever. When that final sinner, whoever that is, when that final sinner in the world repents and comes to Christ, the Lord will return, and he will remove any residual shame that the world has hurled at us or that we've experienced. On that day, the great day of the Lord, the jealousy of God will move him to silence the wicked once and for all. And for those that have found salvation in Christ, we will never, ever be ashamed again. We will flourish like never before. The planet will flourish. Both God's land and his people will flourish. And this is what we're meant to learn in Joel, that in Christ, our lives can even begin to flourish now. He came to give life, what? Abundantly. And it starts now. But it will flourish in immeasurable fashion when God restores all things. That will be God's jealousy and action for his name and for his people. 1 Peter 2.6 tells us that whoever believes in the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. And so it's vital for us to see the realities displayed to Judah, that they are displayed to us as well. God meant that flourishing land to point ahead to the new creation and for those that are in proper covenant uh, with God. Right? Judah's temporal coming restoration, what they're experiencing in time and their blessing that's coming points ahead to something much more grand. Now, as we ascend and tran 
uh, ascend this chiastic structure, I want you to see a little more clearly the next step, right? The second thing we see is that the Lord's removal of shame will result in Judah's teeming. The, the Lord's removal of shame will result in Judah's teeming. The first thing we saw is that it's the Lord's jealousy that will result in Judah's teeming. Secondly, we see the Lord's removal of shame is going to result in Judah's teeming. Now look at verse 19. Scripture says this. The Lord answered his people. Look, I'm about to send you new grain, new wine, fresh oil. You will be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. In verse 18, we see that the Lord is sparing his people from further judgment, which will result in no further shame being heaped upon them. And in verse 19, it goes further, and it shows us that this, what the sparing of shame looks like. It's actually a sparing of judgment, and it's a bringing of blessings. And this bringing of blessings is in response to the people's prayers. That corporate sacred meeting that we talked about last time as they gathered together with the praying priests, it resulted, we can see now, in God hearing and responding. The Lord answered his people, verse 19 says. And what he says is that he's about to send them grain, wine, and oil. Now, please understand that this has not happened yet. As we're reading through Joel, it's telling them of what is going to happen. God promised to do this. It's coming. And the thing that he's promised to send them were the very things that he took away. Grain, wine, and grapes. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, olives, right? Or things that make oil. Grain, wine, and oil. They're the very things he took away in judgment. They're the very things that filled their bellies, and took care of their needs. They're gone, they're coming back. These are the same things that they would offer up to God to say, God, thank you for blessing me, thank you for loving me, I love you back, and so I'm going to give you a portion of these things up back to you. They couldn't do that because they had no blessing from God because of their rebellion. But blessing is coming because they've repented and God is restoring. God's jealousy is doing this, and he's now acting to protect and to bless them. And when you continue to read verse 19, you see that Judah will be satiated, satiated with grain, wine, and fresh oil. Satiated means that they'll be full and that there'll be excess. Full and more. They currently have nothing. They're on the brink of death. That's the polar opposite of what is about to happen to them. And because of God's superabundant blessings and jealous love being poured out upon them, God says he will no longer make them a disgrace among the nations. No longer make them a disgrace among the nations. You see, it was God who was shaming them in the midst of the nations, right? Because that's what he says. I will no longer make you a disgrace. It was God who was shaming them. And now that they repent, it is God that will be exalting them among the nations. God is in their midst during their shame, and he's in their midst during their gain. God desires for his own glory to be known, though, among these pagan nations who are mocking him and mocking Israel. He wants to be known among them as well, not just Judah. And so when you look at verse 19, you can see that it mirrors verse 26. Okay, look at verse 26. You will have plenty to eat and be what? Satisfied. We see satiated, but satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrous, wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. Now notice that being satiated again in verse 19 matches having plenty to eat and being satisfied in verse 26. God is not disgracing Judah in verse 19 anymore and that means never being put to shame again in verse 26. There's a match there too. So verse 19 says that God is talking to his people, right? His people. Verse 26 again says that these are his people, God's people. The one thing that's added in verse 26 is that the people will praise the name of the Lord their God. So they will be teeming with joy as that is going to be the focus of this entire sermon in two parts. Worship will resume. God will be loved and praised. Currently, there is no praising going on because everyone is destitute. And so we see the similarities between 19 and 26, but there's more than just 
what we're looking at in the initial phases of this chiastic structure. Joel is a master of poetry. There are many uses of poetry that Joel uses to communicate God's grace. One is this chiastic structure that we're moving through. The other is the use of repetition. He uses repetition in verses 18 and 19, and he also uses repetition in verses 26 and 27. Okay, So for just a second, look at the first two verses again. In verses 18 and 19, God is sparing his people. right? Sparing them from what? Shame and, and disgrace. And that is matched in verse 19 with God not disgracing his people. So there's parallel statements that are also parallel in other places. Okay, This idea is repeated. And so there's some sense of repetition in those first two verses. But it's even more noticeable in verses 26 and 27 where that phrase... My people will never be put to shame, all right? Or my people will never again be put to shame, where it's repeated twice. So Joel is like doing double parallels, right? With repetition at the top, repetition at the bottom, but still matching statements in a chiastic structure. It's very unique and very uh, intertwined the way that he does this. So God repeats this, uh, these things uh, over and over again. Now, repetition, it's very important. It's a poetic device. In Psalm 136, it repeats the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, some 26 times. Over and over it's repeated. And it stresses the importance of us needing to remember something. It stresses the importance of us needing to remember something. It stresses the importance of us needing to remember something. That's what repetition does. Repetition is a learning aid. Repetition is not the same thing as vain speech or the vain praying that Jesus condemns, as Pastor Steve will be teaching on soon enough. Many people think that God frowns upon us singing songs with repetition. We sang some songs with repetition today, and there there are people that have left our church because we repeated a phrase just one too many times for them. Repetition is not the problem. Repetition is a learning aid. Vain repetition is the problem. Praying for vanity's sake so that people will notice you and that God will notice you for your much speaking. You're doing it for your own pride. That's the problem, okay? But repetition is important in Joel. God wants them to know that all ends well for them. No more shame. I'm going to spare you. No more disgrace. My people will never be put to shame again. My people will never again be put to shame. He's saying it over and over. He's trying to instill confidence in them and hope in them for what he's about to do. It's meant to communicate the point that while his anger lasts a moment, his favor lasts a lifetime. They'll never again be put to shame. They'll never again be put to shame. And God weaves this repetition in the last two verses within the chiasm, which is already paralleling and matching in other ways. You're going to see this in other verses as well. Joel is a master poet. So let me ask you this. We see what he's telling Judah in verses 19 and verses 26. Do you feel like your life is overflowing with the blessings of God? Or is sin sin running so rampant in your life that you feel like God may be disgracing you among unbelievers? Do your coworkers and family members mock you and God because of simple actions and simple decisions that you have made that are haunting you? Is God's discipline upon you so much so that you are not flourishing? well, why don't you repent? Maybe the Lord will leave a blessing behind you, behind him for you. Why don't you arouse the jealousy of God and see if God doesn't move on your behalf and on behalf of his glory? Do you think that God wants to be mocked and ridiculed because of your sin? I don't. I think God wants the nations to know that he's in the midst of his people. Do you want to know that he's in the midst of us? Then let's repent of whatever sin we need to. God intends for us to be satisfied and satiated with his blessings and his presence most of all, that he is among us. Church, that is the end to which we are headed. We are headed to ultimate blessing in God with God as he is with us forever. So even though we live in this world that's still affected by sin, even though we live in this kind of tainted world, and even though we suffer hate from the world, we can still flourish. 
Have we not read the word of God? Are we so reformed that we can't expect any blessing from God? That we think any amount of prosperity or blessing from God means that we've uh, given in to the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? Because we can err on that wrong side too. Or have we so hated the prosperity gospel that we think the Christians can never be blessed by God? The prosperity gospel, if you don't know, it's wrong. It should be condemned. It says, God, it says that God wants to make you rich now. And if you give money, whatever you give in offerings, that God will double and triple and give you back a hundredfold. The health and wealth gospel preaches and teaches that God never wants you to be sick or to suffer illness. Those pastors are wrong that preach that. Damn them. His word never says that. We live in a fallen world, and this world groans and longs and waits for redemption. It waits for the new creation. It's part of this life. The gospel isn't that Jesus came and died and rose again to make you rich and totally healthy now and to restore your balding head. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> He's rubbing his head like a genie. All right? Make one wish. All right? I want a million wishes. All right? The gospel is that Jesus died for your sin and rose again to bring you to God so that you'll forever be blessed by the presence of God now and in a new heaven on a new earth where death is no more and Christ is the Lord. This is our hope that we just sang about. And I might just say that you sang beautifully this morning. I pray God was glorified by that. And in that inheritance, that coming inheritance, you are truly wealthy and truly well, finally and forever blessed. Thus, since you have God now, and you're, you're headed on that path, that's your destination, you can flourish now, even if you're wasting away right now and dying. You can be spiritually thriving now, awaiting the fulfillment of the physical thriving that is coming there's an eternal physical thriving promised to you. The prosperity gospel is false and damnable, but it's not wrong to say that God intends for his people to flourish. Let's go to the word. Psalm 1 speaks of the man or the person who delights in the law of the Lord. That means they're obeying God's laws, his word. That man is said to be like a tree, teeming with fruit because it is planted by streams of water. I guess that wasn't meant for us. This man prospers, Scripture says, and all he does, he lives a flourishing life. The only one who did this perfectly, by the way, is Jesus Christ. He is that Psalm 1 man. And you are saved because Jesus fully delighted in the law of God. And he went to that cross and died for you. And by faith, when you believe in his death and resurrection, Jesus gives you the full blessing of his 100% flourishing life. You are granted his righteousness so that you may flourish. Ultimately, we are saved because Jesus was perfect and Jesus flourished like no other. Of course, we understand that this is the Old Testament, but it's still applicable to us. Jesus carries over this principle under his law, the Beatitudes that Pastor Steve was preaching through. Jesus preached and spoke of a teeming life, a flourishing life, an abundant life, of a blessed life, an overflowing that one possesses because they seek to be holy and righteous. As Psalm 1 says, they live by the law of God. If you live by the law of Jesus, you will team, you will flourish. You live a God-honoring life, you will be blessed, a blessed person, a flourishing person in many ways. Again, you got to understand, only Jesus fulfills the Beatitudes perfectly, but he did it for you and me so that we could imitate him. The fruit of the Spirit you know what that is? It's not papaya. They're not bananas. The fruit of the Spirit are the things that we team with when we are walking in the ways of God according to his word. Only Jesus perfectly displayed the fruit of the Spirit. He is the only true flourishing one. But church, our lives are supposed to flourish. The way that flourishing life begins is when, first of all, we trust in Jesus to save us. Jesus, you are my God, you are my Savior, you are my King. I turn now and submit to you, and I obey what you tell me to do. I will no longer turn and rebel against you and shake my fist at you. I will serve you as God and King and Master. 
right? That's what repentance is. That's what Israel, Judah just did. We can flourish when we repent and we believe that Jesus is our Savior, that he died and rose again to restore us, to take out a rebellious heart, put in one that will obey him so that we can begin to flourish and grow to be like Jesus who flourished immensely and perfectly. And that restoration is coming in fullness one day. And God will not damn us to hell. Instead, he'll love us and save us and he'll put us on this flourishing path which ends with a new heaven on earth. So what keeps us from flourishing is that we do not do what God says. We often reap the consequences of our sin. I am not saying that obeying God leads to riches and wealth. I make that abundantly clear. Certainly there are people who obey God and they still suffer hardship and persecution. They live in poverty and they have health issues. Scripture shows this. Philippians gives us a picture of this. But still those people flourish. They flourish with love. They flourish with good works. They flourish with joy and amazing camaraderie. You know, it's not camaraderie. I just found out the word is camaraderie. Did you guys know that? I felt like a dummy when I read that. I'm like, the dictionary on the internet spelt it wrong, all right? But I was wrong. Camaraderie, all right? We can flourish with that. I just thought I would bring up what happened in my studies, all right? So obeying God, listen, at a minimum, obeying God at a minimum means that you're not bringing the discipline of God upon your life and you are not suffering the consequences of your own sin. At a minimum, that's what it means. In fact, obedience to God brings his pleasure and his blessing. The blessings are internal peace, more joy, more patience, more love, more kindness, better relationships. How interesting that they're being blessed with fruit in Israel, and God describes our fruit in a much different way. Yeah? That's what we're meant to team with. We can team with better productivity in our lives, better money management. And even when bad things happen to people who are faithful to God, they can still flourish in the midst of those circumstances. That's not a contradiction. There's no contradiction in those things. Jesus lived the most flourishing life on earth. Would you have to say so? Because he was perfectly obedient to the Father. No one lived a more flourishing life than Jesus, a more blessed life than him. He never sinned. Did he still suffer hardship and persecution? Yes. Did he flourish through that? Absolutely. Jesus, he even said that he had no place to lay his head. His head. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That doesn't sound like flourishing from a world's perspective. All right? But this flourishing isn't attached. It isn't attached to riches and wealth. This abundant life, this flourishing, it's on a different plane, on another level that's above circumstances. It's a flourishing that has its roots, has its heart and life connected to God. And this only happens for us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, while Paul was in prison, he spoke of the joy he had in Christ. I mean, that seems like a hard place to flourish, yeah? Circumstances like prison did not rob him of a flourishing life. He flourished in prison because he lived in light of the gospel and in unity with God. Church, right now you can thrive as you live your life for God and you repent of sin. God will satisfy you with himself. God will satisfy you with the fullness of his spirit. God will satisfy you with this family, this congregation, and this household. You can feel full now. You don't have to walk in this world with the shame of sin in your life anymore. While it may not happen overnight... Because they didn't have fruit the very next day. It took a while for the rain to come and to produce these things. So it may not happen overnight, this, this flourishing in your life. Still, you can be assured that God will send blessing to you in some way, some measure, but in fullness one day and in complete measure. You don't have to wait until Christ comes again to begin to experience the fruit of God's Spirit. Repent. Listen to what God says in the inspired Word of God. And then go do it. Stay faithful to the Lord. Your life can team with the blessings of God. You don't have to be ashamed or shamed by the world anymore. And the world can know that God is with us and that God loves his church. So we see it's the Lord's jealousy and his removal of Judah's shame that leads to their teeming physical life and eventually their teeming spiritual life. And it's the same with us. As we repent, God becomes jealous for us and moves on our behalf. And the world will know that God is among us. So for Judah, this eventually yields exuberant praise and worship, but we need to continue on to see what else God is going to do for Judah in order for them to team even more. Next, we see that the Lord's judgment 
The Lord's judgment will result in Judah's teeming. The Lord's judgment will result in Judah's teeming. If you remember from previous sermons, we saw that Judah had already experienced the day of the Lord and the locust invasion. Then we saw that the day of the Lord was going to come again in greater measure. More judgment was coming upon Judah for their sin. And we saw that this day or this event was certain. Here in today's passage, it seems that this day or event has been canceled. Or was it? Did God promise a certain day only to change his mind? Well, that's one way to look at it. But if you remember, in our first sermon on the day of the Lord, I described it as this, and I'll put a definition up on screen. The day of the Lord. It is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, where his majesty is exalted as he restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. We learned many aspects of the day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of the Lord involves salvation and rescue. Sometimes it involves judgment. Sometimes both. It can include a restoration like we're seeing here in Judah. It can be a destruction like we saw here in Judah. It can be the day of the Lord for Judah. It can be for Judah's enemies. It can be for the world. It can be a past event that already took place, a present event, or a future event. It's, it's all over in Scripture. And that's why we said that this is a recurring event that has its final fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ, where his majesty is exalted as he restores creation, finalizes our salvation, and judges unbelievers. Here in Joel, the day has come. It's a past event, but it is coming. That's a future event. And it's coming again, a far future event. It's mentioned several times. And so Judah has experienced the day of the Lord in this locust invasion. It's coming again, right? The day of the Lord. That's a promise that they're going to experience this if they don't repent. But what happened? Was it averted? The answer is yes. The judgment side of the day of the Lord was averted. Remember, the day of the Lord can be salvation or judgment. They're now experiencing the day of the Lord in salvation, in a restoration. All right, they won't be judged. They won't be disgraced, won't be shamed because they've repented. Judah will be saved. But what's going to be destroyed? Not Judah. God is going to drive their enemies away, though. Thus, we see the day of the Lord in salvation by God driving the locusts away. And this is where the third step of the chiasm comes in. Let's look at verses 20, then 25. Look at verse 20. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land, his front ranks into the Dead Sea, his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. The parallel in these two verses, all right, is that these two verses mention the army that God has sent against Judah. Right? You can skip down to verse 25 in just a second. But in verse 20, the army is called the northerner because, and I'll put a map up on screen, all right? because to the west of Judah is the Mediterranean Sea. That's the west on the map. To the east was the Dead Sea, right? the Med and the Dead. And to the south is the desert. So invading armies typically, typically come from the north. Now when it comes to locusts, locusts generally but not always, they come from the south. So it's, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that the locusts actually came from the north. Historically, that has happened. But the term northerner, like army, is figurative for locusts. It's figurative. It's meant to signal to Judah that the locusts were an army from God, that he sent this to them, just as we read at the beginning of chapter 2. And there's an abundant use of military language when it speaks of the locusts. And so when you look at this chiastic structure, okay, you see parallel statements matching each other in ascending and descending order. So you can see that the northerner, this army, was the locust that God sent. And so what's God going to do to the locusts, to the northerner? He's going to, uh, that he sent against Judah, he's going to banish them to a dry and desolate land. That is the south. That's what's below Judah. You can see it on the map. And since there's nothing to the east in this, uh, nothing to eat in this desert, right? Deserts generally don't have anything to eat. What's going to happen? Many of them are going to die in the desert. Remember, Judah is now in a dry and desolate land because of the locusts. Judah used to teem with life. The locusts now are going to get the very same judgment that Judah had, nothing to eat. 
The locusts who were once full from the produce of Judah's land will now starve just as Judah is starving. And so it's going to be a reversal of circumstances for Judah and the locusts. The front ranks into the Dead Sea, which is to the east of Judah. The Dead Sea has no outlet to the ocean, so water only flows into it. All the salt that flows into the sea stays there. This makes life almost impossible in the Dead Sea. No fish live there, no seaweed grows in the Dead Sea, only microscopic organisms and uh, an unintelligible life, which I found a picture of some unintelligible life in the Dead Sea. That's all that grows. That's not the picture I wanted. Up. I'm just kidding. All right. Just kidding. That's Pastor Steve and uh, Pastor John and uh, Brother Thomas in the Dead Sea floating away. All right? You can take off that picture. <laughs> right? You're still with me. All right? Now, this is, this is where the front ranks of the locusts are going. The rear guard, more military terms, are going to drown the Mediterranean Sea. Actual accounts of locusts in their invasions are recorded where swarms perish in seas. And then their carcasses wash up on the shore and the foul smell due to their rotting and, and decomposition arises. And this is what God says will happen to this army, this enemy of Judah. And this is the reason that God will destroy these locusts is because they have done astonishing things. They have ruined the land of Judah. And so we see this amazing thing that God is going to do. Now, uh, when you, uh, let's look at verse 25 briefly, okay? Verse 25 says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. So look at verse 20 and 25. There's a parallel. There's a northerner, there's a great army. Those are both armies, all right? The devouring locust, you can see that they ate all the land, right? But then you see at the bottom of verse 20, astonishing things, right? You see that it was God's great army that he had sent against them. So there's a parallel there between these two statements and that God is going to uh, destroy both of these groups and they are both one and the same. He'll destroy the northerner. If they're an army, a physical army that has yet to invade Judah, then why are they going to be destroyed? That doesn't make sense. It makes sense to punish the northerner if they actually did something to Judah. And they did. The locusts destroyed all their produce. The drought came in and made the situation worse. That is why God promises rain in a restoral of what the locusts destroyed. And I have to tell you that this passage is just too big to preach in one sermon. It's really worth looking at as a whole, but it's very big. You can see all these poetic devices that Joel is using. Imagery, all right, metaphor, uh, Parallel passages, repetition, um, and as I mentioned, of course, this chiastic structure that we're seeing developed a little more clearly. There's repetition in God making sure that Judah's never shamed again. Repetition in the phrase, God has done great things. You won't see it now, but you'll see it next week. The, the, the northerner has done great things in verse 20. In verse 21, it is God who does great things. And so you see parallel, 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 and you see chiasm just being formed all over the place. It's, it's magnificent how Joel has strung this together in multiple ways, but with unity. In verse 25, we see four kinds of locusts, right? We see the swarming locust, the young locust, the destroying locust, the devouring locust. It could be four stages of locust development, like baby locust to adult and in between. Some people think that that's what this is referring to. It could be four separate locust invasions that happened over four different periods of time. Some people think that. Whatever the case is, it's meant to show that devastation was complete and total, that that's the kind of shame and judgment that God brought upon Judah for sin. This fourfold devastation, it is about to be matched, and we'll have to wait till next week to see it, with the fourfold mention of an outpouring of rain. I sent... Locusts and locusts and locusts and locusts, and I'm going to send you rain and rain and rain and rain. Joel knows what he's doing with the use of poetry. This is probably, again, one of the most intricate passages and funnest passages I've ever been able to preach through. And it might not seem that fun, but as you're, when you're studying it and pulling it apart, it's a blast. It's well-crafted. For now, what do we do with verses 20 and 25? We see that Judah's enemy, the locusts, will be destroyed. 
the northern. That which was bringing death to Judah is going to die and bring about the teeming land and a life of renewed worship. Was that not good news for them? It was. And I don't know about you, but when I read passages like this, passages like this, I begin to get the aroma of the gospel. And it reminds me of what Jesus is going to do. In the gospel, doesn't Christ deal with our enemies so that we may flourish and worship him? That's what the gospel does. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22 says this. As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or of those who have died. He's the first harvest. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There's a harvest that is coming. A harvest in like manner of Christ's resurrection. That which had death, because death is in us in some sense, even though God has given us eternal life, we still die. That which has death and destruction will be raised to life because of Christ. Just as death was reigning in Judah... God's grace came and brought life and restoration to them. So too, death is reigning in us. And Christ came to give us a renewal, a restoration. We are a new harvest. Now, for sake of time, again, uh, we look at verse 25 uh, of 1 Corinthians 15. An amazing verse. For he must reign, referring to Jesus, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. That is our conquering God. You see, it wasn't just Judah that had enemies to contend with. The church does too. The church is comprised of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. That's non-Jews. Satan will be defeated by God for us and is defeated. Every ruler that has risen up against Christ and his people will be defeated by God for us. The last enemy, death, that will be abolished too. And Joel teaches us and points us to that fact, that for those who repent and turn to Jesus Christ as Savior, we are forgiven, we are restored, we are brought back to God. And God's jealous love for us will be shown in a flourishing life now and even more flourishing life in the new creation, which will start with the destruction and abolition of our greatest enemy and our last enemy, death. Thank God for what Joel teaches. It is there to nourish our faith in Christ, who grants us victory and who grants us blessing. It is there to call us to repentance and for us to take God to his word to drive us towards that. Now, we haven't gotten to the high point of the chiasm, but you can see where it's leading. It's leading us to rejoice in God and to praise him and to adore him for the great things he has done. So let us adore our Lord this morning. And if you're not a Christian, I have to warn you. The destruction of the locust that we read about, it's just a foreshadowing of the judgment to come to the nations that Joel will talk about in chapter 3. Like the locusts, unbelievers, right, who mock God. And his people will be dealt with one day as the, as the locusts came to devastate the land of Judah. Unbelievers will be the ones who are put to shame. And they are counted as God's enemies, just as Judah had their enemies. Destruction is coming to those who fall into that category. But God is gracious. He's willing to forgive. And he's willing to grant blessing if you'll but turn to Jesus as Savior. If you'll but believe that he died and rose again to bring you to God. That is how God begins this work of restoration and this work of destroying death for you. That is how God brings you into his family. It's through repentance, turning from sin and turning to God. And it's through faith. Not faith in just something random or just some blind trust. It's an actual confidence in Christ. That's what faith is, that he will save you. You trust him to save you. If you repent and trust, you are promised eternal life with God. In a physical world, in a real world, not in some cloud space where you're just playing a harp and kicking back, wearing big diapers like some funky cherubim, 
that Hollywood has painted a picture of. Nobody wants to see that, all right? It is total restoration to this planet. Perfection. This planet will flourish. So will the people living here. But the only people living here will be those who know Jesus as Savior. You're invited in. While you're living your life, driving the highways and the byways, we're compelling you. Come into the celebration. Come on in. There's room for more. There's room for many more. Come and join the family of God by coming to Christ. God is jealous and zealous for his people and for his name. Come to Christ in repentance and faith and join the community that will flourish forever under the love of God. He has done great things for us. Let us pray. Blessed Father,